Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. And good morning to New Haven Mayor Tony Harp. Mayor Harp is here in the studio for her regular Mayor Monday checkup on what she and we are up to in the New Haven area. Join the conversation by posting a question on our New Haven Independent Facebook Live page. Or you can call in like Bob at 203-8727-ELM, 203-8727-356. Today's program is made possible in part thanks to support from Bertram Moses PC and from Gateway Community College. Thanks, Gateway. Thanks, Bertram. Thanks, Mayor Harp, for stopping by. How you doing? Good. How you doing? Good. I didn't even let you get a sip of your tea there. <laughs> <That's okay>. <laughs> <laughs> How's your weekend go? It was good. It was really good. Yeah. 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 Uh, What's the latest and greatest in New Haven? Well, you know, I think that one of the most inspirational things that that I attended over the weekend was the ordination of Hiram Brett um, to become um, um, an ordained minister in the um, um, Congregational United Church of Christ um, organization. And uh, he lives in New Haven, I believe he still does, but will be the pastor of a church, um, Whitneyville Congregational Church. And who is he, like what made this special? Well, you know, he's somebody who was an executive at um, our um, the former phone company for many years. Uh, he and his wife moved here to for him to do that work. He retired, and then he went back to divinity school for, for six years, and he's done a lot of things around the area, at the hospital, at various churches, and... Um, and now he's taking on his own church. Which Found a new calling. Yeah. Which As so I, many more people very, do that now. Yeah. It's a it part of life. Very, very inspirational. And I find that interesting because I know that a lot of people, when they get to retirement age, they have these dreams they always thought they wanted to pursue. You know, and sometimes they deal with religion, you know, like diving mm-hmm. and either getting some kind of, either just study or some kind of, like Thomas the Jewish tradition or getting some kind of ordination. And I find that some people it happens and other people find that what they always thought they wanted wasn't necessarily what they wanted to do that in fact you did what you wanted to do now that's interesting too yeah i i i honestly years ago i thought i wanted to be a minister but back in those days particularly in um among baptists women were not supposed to preach or be leaders of a, of a congregation this is years and years ago like are we talking 50s 60s uh probably in the 50s 60s and so um, I sort of put it on the back burner, but then I realized that there are, you know, if you have calling, there are more than one ways to deal with that. Right. So <laughs> when you gave your stay of the city, you talked about what the moral imperative was of a society and a community right. right now in this age. Is that something you might do in a later chapter of your life? I doubt it. I, you know, I think I've, I think I'm, I'm in the second group of the people that you, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I will. <laughs> I think one thing I find is that your brain doesn't work the way it did when you were younger. So like learning languages. I know one man who was a scientist and his whole life he thought he wanted to be like a Talmud scholar instead and he retired and it, and it didn't take. He was going to study Talmud and you can't do that with your brain the way you did when you were 20s. Or for me, I know I loved languages mm-hmm. and I just can't learn languages the way I used to be able to learn languages when I was younger, you know? Well, maybe it might take a little longer, but you can still do it. Yeah. <laughs> we bring wisdom with A. So if you want to be like this guy, Mr. Bell, he said his name, uh, Reverend Bell now. Uh, Brett. Brett, Reverend Brett. So I guess he brings wisdom being older. So that's one kind of, that uh, you can bring that to the clergy position. You have life experience that 
deepens your understanding of human nature and what what you've seen. I, I would think so because I think uh, I see a lot of these younger ministers and and I I just wonder to myself, you know, like uh, they have to deal with really complex and challenging problems that they're the people in their ministry may have or face and and what do they bring um, to sort of grapple with those things? I, I don't know. I mean, it would seem like it'd be really difficult if you're young and you just hadn't seen a lot of life and um, can't bring, you know, like a, a sort of, I would say, a, a, a measure of salt to people's issues. Yeah, know? I know what you mean. Sometimes what I see with younger, successful clergy people is the ability to bring that energy of, of of seeing where Congress you might want to move if they've done right. things a certain ways. So sometimes people find you too brash if someone wants to change things and come in and like they know it all and there's often, you know, congregation split or push people out. But other times I have seen in New Haven, cross religions, models of successful clergy people in their thirties, mm-hmm. maybe late twenties, thirties, who do patiently and with respect for the older guards see where people may want to move and evolve new people and add new ways of worship or building community. And I, and I think that you've got to find somebody who can do both. So that if, if you're older, you've got to um, work with different generations. And if you're younger, you've got to have the facility to do that as well. It's, it's an interesting job. Yeah. We wish uh, Reverend Brett the best. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, some people are also wishing the best. Were 80 individuals last weekend on 20, 45 minutes noticed needed to leave a rundown building they live in on Norton Street, 66 Norton Street, a.k.a. New Jack City. Um, the building's had problems for many years, and it, there was an inspection by your Livable City initiative that found it structurally unsound. There were kind of two sets of problems. One is they were worried at some point the building might fall down with support beams that were weak, and it's a big apartment building, over 40 apartments, brick building in the West River neighborhood. But there were also the kind of churchy South issue. There was all this many years of water damage and leaks and mold and people with asthma, and now people living in hotels and concerned about what happened next. Tell me what you saw in this situation and where do you think it's headed? Well, you know, one of the things that, that, that I saw that I think is a positive is that I saw the kind of collaboration that we would have never seen before among departments in the city. So that, yes, the um, livable city's um, inspector went out and inspected because one of the things that we've made a top priority in our city is for our landlords who are supposed to get uh, their uh, landlord licenses, get those licenses. That requires an inspection. But so when he went in and he saw something that he thought was... was yeah, it was Rick Mazzadra, yeah. Right, was troubling. Um, and he then called our our um, building permit department and Jim Tercy and his team, they came over and they looked at it, were really floored. They called it's in... The worst they've seen in 21 years, according yeah. to Jim. yeah. They then called in our our police, our fire, and and they called the 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 owner and the manager, told them they had to evacuate the building, and uh, then the board of education even got involved by providing buses, and so you really saw a, a real sense of collaboration among our departments to get people out of there in a in an orderly and safe way. But the other thing that we've been working on, and I've got to commend LCI for doing that. You know, we have a number of, of departments that give to landlords, homeowners, various kinds of, of, of uh, loans and grants uh, for lead, for other kinds of problems that might exist in the, in their um, 
their buildings. And um, what we weren't doing before we started focusing on collaboration was asking whether or not they were they had their landlord license or, or permit. We are now doing that, and we were, will not give um, any kind of city benefit to a landlord unless they are, are licensed in our city. And we think that's really important because you then get to go into these buildings and you can find out whether or not there are problems that have to be addressed. I mean, one of the things, you got so many buildings in town and only so many people, how do you stay on top of it? Well, and it, but one of the things that we're doing, collaboration actually helps us do that because we have a number of departments that are seeing things. They may not know precisely or have the responsibility for making a determination, but they know when they see something that doesn't look quite right, they can make the call to the appropriate department that can make a decision about whether or not that's a problem. That's why you also started this idea of neighborhood sweeps, where you get all those departments together, go for a one-time sweep through a neighborhood, tell citizens where they can find out, first of all, see where the problems are, but also ask citizens to get in a regular process of sending information ahead and setting up some kind of, yeah, some new computer tool all the departments right. can access quickly any one property and see what every department has found there. If you inspect their electricity, you'll find out what they did about... Uh, fire calls and, and stuff like that. I guess you're about to go into a second neighborhood, right? You did New Hallville. When is the Fair Haven? And we're going we're gonna, to um, set the date on Friday, but we're moving into Fair Haven um, in March. And so we'll be um, sending everybody out to um, certain areas of, of Fair Haven in March. We've already, we're doing the, the groundwork now, sort of looking at our, our, our maps uh, using the technology so that we can layer um, various things. So we, we'll know where all the home ownership housing is. We'll know where all of the um, buildings are that already have the licenses, the ones that don't. We'll know where all of the crime is committed, what streets it's committed on. And um, so we have the ability to layer all of these, these things on top of each other. And you now this is a way that maybe the viewers can help. Uh, we are we've we've been calling it uh, sweeps, and uh, there's some sensitivity to using the term. Because it sounds sweep. like a drug sweep or a criminal sweep, or you know, um, uh, or ice sweep. So. so just tell them it's like the Emmy sweeps. Like you can sweep <laughs> the Emmys. You're gonna get statues. <laughs> and so, um, what we've been asking our departments to do is to come up with a different name. But if any of your Okay, what are we going to call the sweeps? What do we call the sweeps? What do we call the sweeps? Uh, <laughs> and you can put it online, and you know we need to have an answer oh. by by um, by Friday morning, so uh, at nine o'clock. So, <laughs> um, and we will judge them, and if any of your listeners are the winners, we'll we'll um, announce that. <laughs> oh, and then we'll give you like a free year's license, even if your buildings are no, no, no. no. <laughs> Natasha <laughs> Smith writes in, hello, what is next for the families of 666 Norton? How is a community in a city, can we help them? So you had no choice. You had 45 minutes to get them somewhere. So you put them up in hotels. Usually those are not the most pleasant place to be staying. So families were there without food, place to keep food if they got food, without a lot of their belongings. There are three judges motel, a lot of them, which is a not nice place. One kid had asthma and it was even worse over there. Mm. But you know, you know where else to put them first. Um, I know over the weekend, the landlord did through LCI provide stop and shop gifts or tickets for family, I believe a hundred or $150. Now there's a question of what happens next is I get a sense no one's going back in that building soon. 
So thank you for the question, Ratasha. What, what can we do to help those families and what's next for them? Well, first of all, and, and I was uh, happy to, to hear this. I went over during a portion of the evacuation of the building and I heard the, um, the management representative, Mindy, I believe is Mindy Katz, um, speak and he spoke to the people who were leaving and he said that he would find people um, decent places to live while this was uh, while the buildings being readied for right he has repair. ocean management which has more apartments I believe than the housing authority I could be wrong well it, I, I I thought I think that he did and and you know certainly I read uh, the very good story in your um, oh, thank you in your online um, newspaper that basically indicated that they've already found. 10, um, and they, they need to find, while it's 80 people, there are, I think there were about 37 apartments, um, uh, sort of owners of the leaser families. And so, uh, another 27. And so we are really, he indicates that he can do this. And so we're going to give him an opportunity to do it. Um, and if that doesn't happen, we're going to go back again to LCI who will, then have to work with our partners at the housing authority to see what we we can come up with. But he seemed very confident that he could relocate everybody, and so we're holding him to that. The, do you remember this whole idea about wealth from hotels? You remember in the eighties, this all started oh, being yes, discussed. I, it's I got through a lot of different. You had the rap program. We try to get people out of those hotels. It's always mm-hmm. been a because you have this dilemma of you got to put people somewhere so they're not out freezing, and these aren't the nicest places in the world. You know, it's sort of. They're not. And, and Yale has swing dorms. I wish we had swing <laughs> dorms, like, you know, manicured lawns and all that. You know. And I think he was hoping that it would just be for the weekend, but it seems like it's yeah. taken a little bit longer to get everything set up. So Actually, Jim Tercio, Bill and Fisher told me this morning, they're not even going to be enabled yet to go in and get your heavy furniture. They're really worried about safety. I think there's a liability question. You don't want someone in there and the place collapses. So even though it probably isn't going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month, you don't want to take any chances. So they're going to let people in today, I believe, with escort from the fire department to get medicine and emergency belongings so that they can live day to day. But it's going to be a little while on the furniture. So, Ratasha, I'll keep an eye out today for you. A very good question to see also if there's anything else that they need from the community. And we'll ask Marquisha Ricks to ask that question when she's out on the scene. Big deal. Big, big thing happened in New Haven last week. And it sounds like everyone swung into action. The other question our, our commenters have been asking is how come... This wasn't caught sooner. Like, how did it get to that point? So one of the things, and, you know, it's one of the questions that I asked, um, we can't just go into a building and uh, inspect it. Um, and oftentimes, because uh, there were four apartments that were Section 8 apartments. Right. And so we asked, well, why wasn't it caught during that inspection? It's because they didn't go into the the basement they went into oh, okay. the apartments that were being inspected and just like um, church, church street south, south uh, those apartments were in good shape mm. you know what i love about church street south um there was one person we interviewed who lived in an apartment in church street south who had a one of the few departments of good shape and uh she said they would only come to her apartment every time. She'd say every two years. She'd say, will you please go next door? Will you please go down the hall? You're always coming to her because you know this is the only good apartment. That's not the way to inspect this right, building. But right. it's a different situation, Norton. You had a legal responsibility at the housing authority to go to the units that were being right. were being inspected. It's also very hard to get to the bottom of it. You know, as reporters, we think when something like this happens, you immediately hear everything accused back and forth about people, the landlord, the tenants. 
And it's you, you can't jump to conclusions about people because situations end up being a lot more complicated than you think. So like there was one tenant who said, well, you know, he, I, he went, I got retaliated against for not paying rent, but in fact it had gone to court where first the person wasn't paying a rent and then it was a video recording of the person breaking an elevator <laughs> window <laughs> and the judge ruled on the other side. So it's kind of, you know, these aren't very clear cut issues. These are difficult. No, they're really issues. difficult issues. And, you know, honestly, these are just four of the, the apartments were, were subsidized in any way. They're market level apartments. And, and, you know, we have a very um, challenged population here in, in New Haven. So it's difficult for people to pay their rent. Yeah, it is. That's uh if they don't get some help. What from I say somewhere. is, you know, it's tough to be in the poverty landlord business, but no one makes you go in the poverty landlord business. So if nobody had ever bought 66 Norton Street in 2015, let's say it had gone to, because I mean, there have been problems in that building forever. It would be in worse shape and people had a fewer places to live. Someone buys it. They make a lot of money from Section 8 rents. I don't feel sorry for them, but it's a very hard business to be in because of a difficult tenants, you know, a few of them and you have to get them out and they cause damage. And it's, it's a very, I, I've tried to, be more attuned to the subtleties over the years when I write about that because I think it's not a, a clear cut question. It's it's a tough business, and you know, in all honesty, I think that one of the things that that we need to do and that we're working on, and I'm really proud of the fact that that this shows that what we've been doing is working, mm -hmm. is that we're getting out there, we're working together. Oftentimes, it would be very difficult to find out who even owns the building because there are so many loops and that sort of thing happening around yeah. ownership and then you can't get in the building unless a tenant lets you in and the tenant's not going to let you in because they don't know why you're coming in and so some of our problem had always been not being especially with our fire marshals not being able to get into those buildings but now that we're collaborating because most of the people in the neighborhood know um the folks who work in the neighborhood our neighborhood specialists at lci and so lci and the fire department and the building uh, inspector are all working together. And I think that makes a difference. And so the, um, the kind of um, relationship that the LCI neighborhood specialists have developed can now extend to other departments, and, it, and we can get our job done. And that, I think that'll make people safer. All right, and those uh, operations formerly known as sweeps, <laughs> we're going to re rename hamburgers or pizzas or whatever we're going to call them. We're going to get more on top of who owns what and when. The other problem is limited liability corporations where uh, the yeah. trend last couple of decades where everyone, that just means I'm going to create something where you can't really sue me. I'm just going to pretend that the only entity I own is the entity that owns this building, even right. though I own 20 buildings. But you can sometimes, in this case, it wasn't that hard to find the owner because um, the LLC, Limited Liability Corporation, was registered with the real owner's name in the state database, you got to go to the state database. And I think a little that, bit hide and seek. I think that we're going to be working on trying to collect that data, and that's where our program comes in handy that we have. And you can actually go on the um, city's website and find out who owns your building, what right. it's worth, and all the all of that under the map, um, the mapping uh, component of our website. So and the assessor's database. There's yeah, assessor's and so we use database. that. Yeah, we put that in there, and we're going to be. For when, when it's really even more difficult than that, as we find out, we're going to be adding it to our database. And so we're, oh, we're really, yeah, we're working on this, you know, like we're going to hold the people who provide services to people in New Haven accountable.
All right. And then Dominic DeVino writes in, um, he'd like to see landlords keep their buildings looking nice, all caps, change building codes, old buildings in the state should be knocked down, rehab old neighborhoods. And um, he also thought you should have met with Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But what you do in any case is you're listening to Mayor Monday (laughs) on 103.5 FM. You're home for Community Radio WNHA's live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. I hope Bob's okay. I haven't heard from Bob I yet. know. It's really interesting. I haven't heard from him either. So we'll, we'll wish him uh, our best. <laughs> so you were up in Hartford last week a couple times, I believe. Mm-hmm. One of them was the Honor Margaret Morton. Right. Now, was she the first black female legislator elected in Hartford? Uh, she was the first... Senator. Uh, first senator... Uh, African-American woman senator elected um, in our state, and she represented a district in Bridgeport. And so last week, I believe you were inducting her into, for small for Black History Month, you were inducting her into some kind of Hall of Fame. What or? we wanted to do, we were recommending her name for the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame, and uh, I was there to support that nomination. All right. Now tell me why you were there. How did you relate to it as someone who was an African-American woman state senator? Well, you just said it. <laughs> <laughs> Twice, you know, <laughs> 21 years. Are you the, you were the second, second one. one. Yeah. Okay, so first there's Margaret right Morton behind, and then there was Tony Hall. Yeah, Hart. I came in right be, behind her. She re, retired um, the the year uh, before I ran, or the year that I ran was her last year. So 92 was her last year. Yeah, and then I was uh, elected, and, and you know, and a lot of people still remembered her, and I had met her. She was very good friends of... Um, someone that I worked with. And when you meet someone that has done something like become a state senator, then you think, well, oh, if ever you want to do that, you think, well, someone else who looks like me has done it, maybe I can do it too. Mm-hmm. Have there been anyone since you? Any African-American Yes, senators? Marilyn Moore is a, a state senator from, um, represents Bridgeport. Okay, okay. Yeah. And uh, what was this event like last week? What happened? It was very nice. Um, we, um, uh, the lieutenant governor was there. Uh, Marilyn Mel- Moore hosted it. Um, Tony Walker, Representative Walker, came and and uh, said hello. The family came to um, speak some about their mother and to um, indicate their support for her uh, being named. She into- alive still? No, she passed. She passed away. away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like some uh, pleasant business up there. Some other business has been going up there. Um, what What's the latest you're hearing on the on the budget or on the session? What's it looking like? Going to be the big lifts for this well i think that it's going to be you know it's a it's going to be a tough budget as it as it stands um you know the dynamics that existed last year will continue to to exist i think with um the senate being far more um conservative than the house and um and the house also sort of leaning a little bit more to the right and and that's very hurtful to to cities to be honest with you so um we're all trying to get through this it seems like the cost shift has come directly to cities in in our Mm -hmm. in our state and there was a four-state gun control pact announced last week of the democratic governors of connecticut new york new jersey and rhode island we now have a democratic governor new jersey so Instead of Chris Christie and Dan Malloy fighting on Morning Joe or when he was on, you know, now they're all doing something together. Do you think they'll have any impact? Do you think gun control is an issue where states might be able to step into the breach left behind by the inaction by, in Congress? Well, I, I thought that it was a masterful 
uh, political thinking. Uh, part of the problem that we have is what happens when guns travel across state lines. Yeah. And if there are memorandums of understanding and there is a, um, a procedure and protocol in place for for the states to deal with that as these guns are moving across the lines, um, I think that's, that's very helpful. It's it's not as helpful as having uh, something passed in Congress, right. but it's a first Do you first see any step. possibility when Congress, before they go for the uh, end of the session, do you see any possibility? You know, I think that, you know, honestly, just looking at the newspaper today and... Um, right, NRA, the Times argued that it's not going to happen. Yeah, the this. NRA is, is, is pulling out all stops. So it's going to be tough for it to happen. I would love for it to happen. I'd love for people to to think about this in a reasonable way, but my uh, my guess is that it won't. It was missing part of this when I've been reading about Parkland, Florida. What struck me the most was the um, all these messages. Obviously, the guy cried for help. This gunman, you know, calling up basically saying, "I'm going to do something. I need help." And people calling, "This guy's going to shoot people up," and it didn't happen. Connecticut feeling pretty good at the moment because we feel like this law we passed that requires more reporting and more action when there are problems would have stopped this guy from getting a gun, they believe. And we haven't had any mass shootings since Sandy Hook, they never know. Um, do you feel that Connecticut's laws have made a difference? Do you agree with them? I think that they have, and I, I honestly think that um, the data proves it out. Our, our crime has gone way, way, way down, and I think a lot of it is because of our strong gun laws. And Aaron Good writes in with a question. Um, given some of the issues around contracting and procurement at the Board of Education that the Independent has recently reported on, would it be a good idea for the BOE to adopt a clearly articulated code of ethics to help avoid conflicts of interest, such as the code recommended by the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education, or ideally something even stronger? What I love about a question from Aaron Good is he knows the other organization that actually has this <laughs> policy that's written. This guy doesn't just shoot a question out in the dark. Well, well thank know, you for your question, Aaron. We do have a um, governing governance subcommittee and it's um, our ethics policy is one of the things as well as our bylaws is something that they'll be taking up. And, and I think that um, it's, it's important for us to understand the system that exists and then to find a way to, as we sort of move into um, this new administration that will be coming on in um, in a few weeks, um, to how we we function at the Board of Education, it's been doing, it's been functioning this way since they since I've been in political office, and so the real question about function is: um, Are there violations that are illegal? Or that appear to be illegal, or do people just want there to be another process in place? Right, and one thing I think we heard, and that the Board of Eds responded to, is that there never used to be a lot of scrutiny about contracts, especially no-bid contracts. And in fact, there's an argument that a lot of these contracts need to be no-bid. There are cities that do it one way, right. cities that do it another way. So there's been this call for greater accountability, greater scrutiny. So in the last few meetings of the committee that goes over contracts, they've made a point of grilling people. At the last meeting, at least our reporter, Mr. Peek, wrote, it seemed like they went very hard on this one guy in the department who does these emergency maintenance contracts, mm. and they held off on 11 emergency repair contracts that it turned out the board members didn't understand, and that there was a very good reason that if they didn't approve this kind of no-bid on-call contract, we in fact weren't going to be able to 
fix it when someplace floods or something, and that there wasn't a lot of questioning on the other stuff that was brought up. Do you think that there's a genuine, sincere effort now to scrutinize more, and do you think there's a concern that maybe there's a lack of capacity on the board? Well, you know, one of the things that I, I worry about, and this is just generally, we have a seven-member board, uh, one of those members is the mayor, and I, I I love being on the Board of Education, so I don't want it to change. But um, we cannot administer a, a $500 million budget. Mm-hmm. It's just not what we can do. And I think that one of the things... $500 million is the... Well, well I think it, I think with all of the uh, special funds, um, that it's it's significant. And, uh, and there are a lot of contracts that are, um, that are out there. What I... I, I I think the city itself has a lot of contracts, but the Board of Aldermen does not make us parade every little five thousand right. dollar contract uh, before it. And and for me, the real question for the Board of uh, for the Governance Committee is um, how do we set policy that makes us comfortable that they've gone through enough of a process, mm-hmm. but that we don't have to spend time on every little uh, five ten. $30,000 contract. I don't think that's the best use of the board's time. So, of course, they're going to be, if they want to get serious about scrutinizing stuff more, they have to figure out what they're going to scrutinize and what they're not going to scrutinize. Absolutely. And I think that sometimes going over these little things and getting bogged down with people's busy time, looking at, you know, like five, 10, 15. Uh, and I think technically they only have to approve anything $20,000 and over. But is that even the best use of time? You know, like what? Aren't you more worried that um, if there's collusion, it's a, a, a contract of you know $100,000 or more in space, and, and you could say that those ought to be bid out, but it's the policy that the board ought to be setting, not um, sort of scrutinizing every nickel and dime, which they don't really have the time nor the history yeah. to really make, as you point out, um, uh, decisions that... that Sometimes they're helpful, and sometimes they might not be. And I love these people to death, but uh, they've got to think about what is the best use of their time, and what does a board do? I think a board looks more at setting policy. It's interesting. So another question was what the background should be. So obviously a lot of them didn't have background in contracting. One question that raises somewhere right now was last week, um, should we import board people who have more background in education? One of the questions raised was Joe Rodriguez has been nominated and his background's in government. And there was someone, was there Lauren Anderson, a Connecticut College Education Department chair whose name had been floated, and people said, should we be appointing people more with education backgrounds to the board? Well, we have someone who teaches education on the board. Um, sometimes people say more parents. Joe Rodriguez is a parent. He does understand government. And by the way, he probably understands contracting. <laughs> Uh, so I don't think that he's a, a poor choice. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I wonder is that we have uh, these elected positions, and yet these people run uh, um, unopposed. And uh, and maybe and maybe um, it's because the one that just recently won did have education background, and so um, so that you've got that on the board. So, the question is, what kind of mix do you want? Do you want like seven out of seven? Is it seven people? Yeah. Do you want seven out of seven of education? Do you want some of education background, some of government experience, some represent parents, some represent, you know, the perspective of, of how government works? How, how do you get, come up with a mix like well, that? Well, I think that one of the things that I've tried to do is to make sure that, um, that there are people that at least 
have um, really good skills and can understand government at least a little bit that have children in New Haven Public Schools or um, and so they understand that. So I, I've appointed uh, a doctor. We provide medical um, services in uh, New Haven Public Schools, so I think that makes since she also has two children in the um, New Haven Public Schools, I appointed um, someone who is a, the head of an agency um, and can understand what that role is and also has a child in New Haven Public Schools. And I appointed someone who worked uh, in youth services for many years and retired and um, has that perspective. And then we have of someone elected who is a um, got an, a doctorate in education and has taught education all around the United States. And then we have uh, another person who is the chairman of the board who um, is really understands governance and understands uh, Robert's Rules of Order and uh, FOI and those kinds of things very well. So I think we have a very well-rounded board. Our inner city writes in, I like the idea of people appointed and running for BOE who aren't in the education world. Everyone has an invested interest in the education of our children. Fresh perspective and other types of skill sets ought to be welcome. This is a great question. Yeah, no, I think it is. And Joel Calloway says, good question from Aaron on the ethics question. Thank you, Joel Calloway, for your good comment on the good question. Um, the uh, Another issue coming up real quick, and is it coming up tonight, about how we're going to cut $10 million out of next year's school budget? Um, I don't know that. Um, I thought that they were talking about this year's school budget. Oh, ten million from this year, and another from ten next. Or something. And I and I think that they've been collaborating with um, the um, administration over at Board of Ed on looking for cuts. Now, one of the big issues year. is whether a school is going to have to close. And uh, is that kind of seem like inevitable unless we want to raise taxes for the schools? Well, I I don't know. I think there are a lot of ways to to look at all of the services that are provided. And um, there are a lot of ancillary services that are provided in the Board of Education, and maybe some of those might have to to be reduced. Um, the transportation budget is huge. I know that the Board of Education has been looking at that. Yeah, I wonder, you know, some of the, I know that sometimes kids are spending two hours on a bus a day an hour each way, you know, to go from the east side of town to, let's say, West Rock Academy, uh, not West Rock Academy, the um, the one that, uh, the Gale School, at, uh, you know, the, the, one, the old Comer School, the, one, the combined. Um, um, I don't. Okay, any case, by the Brookside Project. Is there a way to change that? That's going to be complicated, right? I mean, there are reasons it's so complicated. We do spend a lot of money busting kids. How do we cut that back? Well, you know, I... I don't know. I think Brennan that, Rogers is what I was thinking. Oh, Brennan Rogers. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I know that the, there are a number of people on the Board of Education that are looking at that and have some interesting proposals. And, you know, one of them is that we don't provide transportation for high school. Hmm. Um, and the other is, I mean, you probably don't notice it as much because you ride your bicycle. But, you know, like um, we could probably limit the number of stops that we have. And so that... Uh, Families, because a lot of times the whole family's out there waiting for the bus, but it stops every, you know, like, um, I don't know, sometimes it seems like it stops every block. And, you know, like maybe we can look at uh, a, a different way 
of um, and the different number of stops, and maybe that will impact on our costs. So, and we um, made a decision as a society or as a city a generation ago that we wanted to go move away from neighborhood schools and go towards school, different theme schools, and people get to pick where in the district you go, and then battle that out for who gets in. And that obviously made a, a scheduling challenge for people at the Board of Ed where they had to spend a lot more money, a lot more time with a lot more kids on buses. I think some arguments now are back in terms of having neighborhood schools and just have, trying like heck to make them all really good so you don't have to feel like desperate to get out of your neighborhood school if you don't live in one where you like the school. Well, and I, the other problem is that so many of our schools are um, magnet schools. Right. And uh, we have an obligation to bus in from... Um, the sub suburban towns that want to send their kids into our schools. Yeah. So those are all the things that sort of I've make been, that cost I've been wondering whether um, the board of ed inadvertently, not not by intention, has set a trap for the new superintendent, Carol Burks. Mm-hmm. She'll be coming in this month, right? And mm-hmm. if I, a lot of us are looking at this and thinking there's going to be no choice but to close the Creed School. There are only like a hundred something kids there. They rent some space. For years, people thought it should be combined somewhere else. But every time it comes up, legitimately, kids who are there and the parents don't like the idea, they show it a public hearing. And of course, we live in a free society. That's important. They'd be able to get to speak. But, you know, when eight or 10 people stand up, then the board would back down. And now when it seems like we might have to close that in one or two other schools, that's always a no-lose political situation for a superintendent. And that if maybe the board had it together, if maybe the last year hadn't been spent so much fighting with the factions, and if they had taken care of a problem like that before she got in, it might have helped set her up for more success. But I don't know if I'm looking at that. Well, and you know, in my discussions with... Um, Although she wanted the job, so you know, getting yeah, to do the job. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, they were closing schools up in Hartford, so she's yeah. kind of a, she understands all of that. I don't know if that will be necessarily the answer that um, she'll come up with. I know she's going to have a transition team that's going to come in and take a look at the entire district and make recommendations Mm-hmm. Uh, as to sort of where we go, um, it might be reasonable to bring Creed into town um, and uh, and to maybe look at some other places. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we can necessarily say that Creed will be the one that will go, but it could be. But, you know, if, you know, we have a number of these alternative schools and we may want to take another look at how we handle that. Mm-hmm. And so there are, there are, it's a very complex system. It's not uh, as cut and dry as most people think. And so I think it's going to take some real looking at the overall system and figuring out where would be the best place for us to make cuts that do the least amount of damage. Mm-hmm. And I got to let you go early today because you're speaking at a press conference um, at noon at City Hall about the Janus decision. Oh, it's 12.30. They moved it. The release I got was 12. Okay. Okay. And that's about the um, Supreme Court decision being heard today about um, whether members of public sector labor unions have to pay mandatory dues to um, support the activities their union does on their behalf. This is seen as maybe the final blow to union power in this country since private sector unions have been decimated over the past decades since the uh, Reagan administration mm-hmm. and the Air Traffic Controllers Union fight. And that um, public sector unions have remained the, the strong, the bulwark of union power, but without dues, they can't fight capital. Any thoughts on that? You know, I'm really worried about the direction in which this country is going. 
with all of the wealth in the country, as, as workers lose more and more rights, all the wealth in this country is in the hands of about 1% of the people. Workers are not, uh, and if you look at, at the income increases, even at this day, you know, my understanding is that it really hasn't kept pace with the, the sort of lackadaisical, frankly, uh, economy. And if workers don't have a way in which to speak to power, whether the power be uh, an administration at City Hall or in the governor's office, how will workers ever move forward? Um, look, I, I'm a mayor and, you know, and I, I sometimes go to blows with my um, union heads on various things, but I would not have it any other way. Yeah, I guess there was a great story in the Times this morning about this guy Uline. I'd never heard of who owns a company in Illinois who spent millions bankrolling this movement, and they found the uh, the plaintiff for the suit in Illinois and electing politicians who were going to be against um, you know any labor rights and having to pay dues. And it's interesting because they they and the Koch brothers they do these campaigns where they do ads where they tell workers you deserve freedom of choice. You need the right not to pay union dues and make it look like the rights of workers against companies. And yet all the money for this comes from big companies who want. Workers did not have the power to negotiate with them, and and what happens? You know, like your 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 salaries lose pace with the cost of living. You Benefits. become poorer and poorer, and you know the the heads of these companies uh, become richer and richer and richer, and you know it destabilizes our country. It's really not a good thing. And meanwhile, riding the bus in Connecticut is going to be two dollars pretty soon. Probably there was a hearing on that right. last week. It's going up. Any thoughts on that? I'm absolutely opposed to it. You know, it's something that, again, um, we're solving an economic problem on the backs of poor people. I think that, that that's an outrage. And um, you invited AP scholars from Hill House. I think it was 17 of them. And, yeah. was, and they had a ceremony. And it's the way that sometimes sport teams are brought in. Right. When they win championships. And I guess that was the idea. And these are kids that not just took AP classes. A lot more doing that. But they passed the AP, which is hard. Right. Um, the... I had been, it reminded me of a half a year ago, you had a ceremony a little more in, hard, in City Hall for Hill House athletes, and you made a point at that one that it wasn't just the boys. Right. The girls got equal time. So your first move was, let's recognize girl athletes, not just boy athletes. And now you're saying, let's recognize mathletes. Right. Not just athletes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Did you see Black Panther yet? I haven't seen it. Oh man, it was good. Really? It was yeah. really good. And I hate, I'm not an action hero movie type guy. And the theater was packed a week later. It was really, it's fun listening to everybody about, Babs Rose Ivy had a great show on it, you know, about what it means for black women to see this movie. But mm. the political currency movie, it's really a political thriller, mm. a sci-fi um, thriller about a lot of issues about colonialism and independence and within tribalism and how people fight with each other about what to do with wealth and success. And it was just a great, great, great. I wanted to see it last night, but I, I got home too late from another event. So hopefully this week. I, I really right, can't wait to see yeah, it. Yeah, my family went. We were four, four in favor and zero not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe when you come back next week, you'll have seen it, but it's not your homework assignment. Because okay. movies are for fun. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck uh, singing the union, raising the union banner at 1230 today. All right. All right. I thought it was 12. And uh, thanks for joining us today on Mayor Monday. Thanks to Bircher Moses PC, Gateway Community College, providing some financial support for today's show. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass reminding us all that we do know what it feels like to be free. 
We just have to book our flight. Book your flight and fly free with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.